Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest today is Lord Chartres, Richard Chartres, an unforgettable face of so many royal uh, events. And lucky for me, he's a neighbour of mine in the country with his marvellous wife, Caroline. And actually, Richard, you're, you're a very strong team. Well, I mean, she's uh, starring at the moment in the drama of our new three granddaughters. We have three granddaughters under two and a half. And although the parents are coping marvellously, uh, Caroline proves to be the most fantastic grandmother. I'm not surprised. But you, you, you were a bishop. You retired as a bishop. But you still keep the title bishop, don't you? Uh, I am a bishop because being a bishop is indelible. It's not a job. I had various jobs um, during life, but uh, I'm still a bishop. And uh, that lasts until really the funeral. I mean, the last judgment, of course, um, we don't know about. But as a bishop, one's carrying to church head first rather than feet first. Unlike the rest of us. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And where does that go back to? Um, The idea is that uh, at the general resurrection, one's got to be in pole position to bless the congregation as they rise from their tombs. So that's why it's the other way around. And, of course, the Lords has 32 bishops who sit, uh, who could attend, and you do it in rotation, don't you? If, since this is about the House of Lords, I'd better say it's 26. Bishops. It's 26, is it? Yeah. It's, it's three by uh, office, five by office, I'm wrong, five by office, um, Archbishops of Canterbury and York, London, Winchester, and Durham, and then 21 others by order of their consecration, by order of their becoming bishop, unless you're a woman, where you're, uh, you're given preference until the numbers of men and women are equalized. So it's 26, and it's been like that um, since, well, there was an attempt to expel bishops from the House of Lords uh, in 1645. It was one of those uh, reforms which didn't really stick, and uh, we've been there actually since the Middle Ages. And these are Lord Spirituals, so I think you were a Lord Spiritual about over 20 years. That's right, yeah. Uh, and when you retired as Bishop of London, you were then made a peer, a crossbench peer, which is not normal necessarily. I mean, it is for a, a, a chosen few, and you, you're one of them. Well, much to my astonishment, it's never happened before. To a bishop of London, no. Um, but uh, I was uh, asked to become a Lord Temporal, and uh, I sit on the cross benches. But I have therefore been in the House of Lords since 1995, and have come to appreciate what isn't clear from public discussion, which is the very important fact that the big constitutional change in my lifetime has been. Uh, when I was young and interested in politics, um, if there was an attempt to curtail discussion of legislative proposals 
in the Commons, uh, the imposition of the so-called guillotine, it was front-page news. People were outraged. There was great debate about it. Now, in order to make the Commons family-friendly, every bill, virtually without exception, has attached to it a timetable motion, which is, in other words, a guillotine, which results in the fact, which will be an interest to any student of politics, that uh, much legislation arrives in the House of Lords totally unscrutinized. The clauses have never been actually examined. So going back over your life, you were born in Hertfordshire, I think. Yes. And what sort of family? Oh, uh, uh, very uh, good and hardworking parents who had no interest whatsoever in religion. Uh, my father used to call the clergy semi-humorously black-coated parasites, <laughs> and um, they were they were they were very very typical of a post-war generation. Uh, they both had very traumatic wars. I was born in 1947, so I suppose I was in many ways still under the shadow. Mm. Um, my father's favourite brother, after whom I'm named. Um, was intelligence officer in the 5th Royal Gurkha Rifles, and he was killed in Italy, a young student, 22. And um, it's, it's one of the reasons why one of the best things that's happened to me recently is I've been asked to be honorary chaplain to the whole brigade of Gurkhas. Oh, as great. a sort of recognition of the fact that uh, I'm already part of the family to some extent. <laughs> but, of course, one of your relations, I think, was a member of Sinn Féin and was... No, to be a bit of a gun runner. No, no, no. We're, none, we're not quite sure whose side he was on. Right. He was. He's, he's he was quick to deny this. He was. <laughs> he was. He was part of the delegation which negotiated the peace treaty with Lloyd George, uh, John Charters, a kinsman, and that was the reason why I think he became the Free State's first ambassador to the Weimar Republic when the Free State was set up. Oh, really? So. Our family were Irish Huguenots. I mean, going back to your, there was no evidence of, of religion in your family, but you went up to Trinity. I went up to Trinity. And, and you read theology. His, history. No, no, no. Didn't touch theology. Right. Uh, at Trinity, I had a, a marvelous time there. And I read history. And uh, one of the best things about life at the moment is I'm an honorary fellow. And Trinity taught me, well, a modicum about history, but a very great deal about um, getting on with people. And it was very kind to somebody who, like myself, because my brother was very severely mentally handicapped mm. at a time when, uh, astonishing as it seems now, people blame themselves for a child that was born handicapped. Mm. So he was only 18 months younger than myself. And after his birth, the, um, the, the blinds were drawn and the shutters went down. I went up to university not knowing that people had meals in other people's houses or that people actually stayed with other people. Uh. There was one incident, I understand, a friend of my father's while emigrating to Canada came to stay when I was about three 
but he ate a box of dairy milk chocolate in bed, and he was the last person <laughs> who was ever allowed to stay. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so I went up to Cambridge. A, and, a, a huge awakening. Well, yes, it was, it was a social education um, of uh, most extraordinary and profound kind. Uh, never having lived away from home at the time, I, of course, didn't know that there must be showers somewhere in New Court in Trinity. I tried for the first term or so to wash myself in the hand basin in my room. <laughs> but fortunately, I then saw a very distinguished uh, octogenarian mathematics fellow um, naked and carrying a bottle of Polish vodka. And, you know, my finely honed intellect uh, um, <laughs> went into operation. I said to myself, this man is heading for the shower. So uh, I followed him uh, with, um, you know, uh, total propriety, of course. The tonic, uh, probably. And I found, I, found, <laughs> I found the shower and never looked back. Yeah. So it was a great social education. And you education. made some great friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. which I still have. Which you still have, yeah. Which um, I'm so grateful for. It's it's amazing. So, where, what point did religion come into your life then? Well, I think it was at Trinity. I was confirmed at uh, Trinity, um, and and but that was a, a decision you made. Yes. Um, and why did you make that decision? Two things, I think. Um, I mean, we didn't, as a family, um, go to church or really were very much interested in the subject. But there was two things. My brother, as I said, was very severely mentally handicapped. And almost my first memory is uh, of people standing around his playpen where he wasn't playing. He was totally inert. Huh? Uh, he never could walk straight. He could never compose a sentence. Um, but his life uh, wasn't a tragedy. He loved music. He evoked love from people. And I think that a question which has always been real for me uh, was formulated there. What's life all about? Is there any meaning if all the glittering prizes for which people compete uh, are out of his reach from the very beginning? So what's it all about? So I think that that question has stayed with me in various forms. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that... Um, I, like so many people early in life, I had uh, numerous experiences of um, being out of the body, being uh, uh, having a sense of the vastness of uh, the universe, and uh, not in any romantic sense, but in a terrifying sense. Here am I, this little blob of consciousness in these vast uh, spaces. And uh, sometimes there was uh, an extraordinary gift, a sense of uh, wonder and ecstasy. So I think that the reason why... When you say out-of-the-body experience, what do you mean by that? Well, I became no longer conscious <laughs> of uh, being rooted. Um, instead, I was out there with all this vastness and I think when I got to university, I found some people in the uh, chapel. Harry Williams, of course, was the dean. Um, and the chaplain was a lovely man called Christopher Courtold. And one of the strange things about my life is that he prepared me for confirmation. And ultimately, I was his bishop. Amazing. 
so I, I think I'm right in saying you, you became a priest in 73. I think that's probably right, yes. Yeah. And you, you, you went to presumably ecclesiastical college? Or... Yes, I was a failed student. Uh, it's one of the best things about my CV. I went to the Liberal Catholic College of Cudston uh, near Oxford, and um, it became clear that I was out of sympathy with the way things were going. Because I was a convert. I actually thought the Church of England was rather a good thing. And uh, the Book of Common Prayer, I thought, was uh, astonishing and uh, spoke to something very deep inside me. But, of course, everybody else, very often sons of the clergy, were bored with it all. And so they were constantly innovating and changing. So finally, halfway through the course, the vice principal was kind enough to say to me, Charters, I have to tell you, that a man with your views has no future in the modern Church of England. And uh, I interpreted that um, in a very straightforward way, I, and I left. And I became deputy headmaster of the International School in Seville, um, which was another extraordinary education. I'm still in touch with some of my erstwhile pupils whom I taught ancient history to A-level. So that happened before 73, of course. Yes, the, the uh, failure. And, and, and the then, failure. Yeah. I, I'm a, I was a failed student at Cudston, which is wonderful. Yeah. I wasn't expelled, unfortunately. That would even be better. <laughs> but I was told that I had no future in the modern church. I think it's amazing. Uh, and then I went back to training, um, and this time it was in Lincoln. At Lincoln Cathedral? Or? No, there's a theological college in those days, right. subsequently closed next door to I don't know, how does it work in church? I mean, you caught the selector's eye in uh, 92 when you became Bishop of Stepney. How, how does... Well, I didn't what, really catch... What's the ca pro process that... Well, I didn't catch the selector's eye because um, uh, in those days, things have changed very rapidly in the church. And um, appointments processes now involve uh, many hours of psychometric testing your favourite uh, subject, I know. My favourite subject. Because you have a great impatience with bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, all sorts of things, total transparency, great deal of form-filling. Uh, in 1992, I had actually managed to re revive a parish, this parish, actually. I was vicar of this parish, St. Stephen's Rochester Road, just around the corner. Yes, I know exactly. Yeah. And it was... Uh, it was in a rather sad state. It had a magnificent future behind it. There had been some charismatic vicars in the 50s. And then, very sadly, it fell on, uh, on hard times. And it had a large staff. And as soon as you sacked a curate, you lost touch with another 50 people. And so it went down and down and down and down. And by the time I arrived... Um, there were 30 people in church on a Sunday, if we were lucky. And so what was the formula for getting people back? Um, promiscuous friendliness, really. Um, always wanting to say yes. And as soon as you said yes, because people were still interested in having their children christened, yeah. uh, it's a populous parish. And we drew also from the other side of the road, from... Vauxhall. Um, was there a Bridge rectory estate. attached to it? Or? Well, there was, a, there was a 1950s horror uh, in Vincent Square. Um, there had been a marvellous Victorian Gothic vicarage, but my predecessor had had it 
torn down and replaced with this extraordinary 50s thing, which he he thought was the first <laughs> flush of a new dawn. Um, it, it actually was the stale fart of a future that failed, uh, and <laughs> it was terrible. But it was all of a piece. <laughs> the, um, the, the morale was very, very low. But what you have to do, I think, is put yourself around, uh, not spend too much time behind your desk, and uh, penetrate uh, this fascinating part of London. And if somebody says to you, will you do this? You say, yes. So you transform this area, and that's how you caught the selector's eye when the Bishopric of Stepney came up, presumably. Well, the selector was the Bishop of London. Yeah. There weren't selectors. And so he summoned me in one day. Um, who, who was then Bishop of London? David Hope. Oh, yes, great man. Yeah. He summoned me in one day and said... Um, uh, there are two vacancies at the moment, Wilsdon and Stepney. And although, as you can see, I'm irredeemably bourgeois, uh, I was really deeply grateful the lot fell on Stepney. We had some gloriously happy years there. But not many. Not many. You because only three, because then you were... Well, because you then became the Bishop, Bishop of London. The excellent Bishop of London, David Hope, uh, went to York. Yeah. Uh, rather sooner than one expected. And so in those days, of course, there was no applying for jobs, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> nowadays, you have to appear before a panel of 16 people and go through the various yes, psychometric said. tests, etc. But then it was all very secret. And um, a letter arrived from the Prime Minister, John Major, saying, would you be prepared to do this? Yeah, I'm not sure that my old headmaster um, was not in charge of the appointments. He was headmaster of Shrewsbury. Um, so we owe him a great debt. And so, uh, Richard, for 22 years, you were Bishop of London. Yeah. It, it's a curious one, being Bishop of London, because obviously it's not a residential area per se, the surrounding areas full of office blocks and city, or certainly was then. Well, well, some uh, of it is because we, we dealt with um, three and a half million people north of the Thames, 18 boroughs. So it's uh, all But they're all naturally going to their own churches in a way. Which are all in the diocese, which yes, you're responsible yes, Bishop. Of course, you, you, you have that. Um, but And I'm constantly visiting because having no... The cathedral was St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. And we live next door to that. Yes, I remember. Uh, but um, uh, every week end, I was somewhere in the diocese, anywhere. So I saw a huge amount of uh, a diverse. And how, how often would you would there be a service every day in the cathedral? Not in the cathedral, but a no, service, there was obviously in the diocese. Yes, a but... service um, daily. Uh, I obviously said the offices, which yeah. you're obliged to do. Um, and it's a very important discipline. But um, there's something happening every day. I mean, you're running 600 churches, 1,000 priests, 153 schools. Mm -hmm. There are huge numbers of institutions. Uh, you are a sort of uh, um, a mild community figure, and you're asked to hallmark and bless things like a new fleet of electric taxi cabs. And <laughs> so 
I mean, and one of the reasons why bishops in the House of Lords, people misunderstand it uh, continually because they say, oh, well, you know, you're just there to defend the Church of England. Uh, in my experience, they don't do very much of that, perhaps too little. But what they are is they're in touch with a vast range of civil society organizations uh, in every part of the country and in some parts of the country which are rather underrepresented in the House of Lords, like Bishop of Truro, for instance, mm. and not so many lords uh, who make it up from Cornwall on a regular basis. So you are in touch with a huge variety of social institutions. There, there is, of course... And, of course, in the city, you would have had... You, you're a liveryman yourself. You would have had to attend lots of livery events and... Well, uh, and you have to ration your treats, Jonathan. Uh, you can't... Uh, I mean, the main job, really, was to build a community which had a sense of cohesion, a sense of purpose and direction. In 22 years, we didn't close a single church. We solved um, a massive financial problem. We started with a million pound a year deficit on yeah. the budget. Um, and every year, the general secretary would say, I've got to put my hands in my hip pocket again, which, of course, meant the sale of another crucial uh, piece of real estate. So we solved that. We balanced the budget for 10 years. We never closed a church. We built a new one in Tottenham. We reclaimed several churches from redundant churches' uses and doubled the paying membership, which you measure by the number of people who sign up in electoral rolls. With that role comes the Dean of the Chapel role. Yeah. And you have been a key person at almost every royal event I can remember in, in recent times. A lot of them were obviously held at um, St. Paul's, but you were um, you did the address at Diana's memorial service in, in 2007. You confirmed Prince William. You um, made was, the sermon I, at... Kate. I was actually her executor. Yes, I know. Which, yeah. he, which is even more. Uh, um, well, I want to come on to that in a minute. You, 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 you gave the sermon at William and Kate's wedding. Yeah. Um, you did the Margaret Thatcher funeral, which I, I had the pleasure of attending. And then, even in retirement, you're still carrying the Queen's ring in the coronation. Yes, so I know. Well, been inextricably in... linked with the royals through that. But going back to Princess Diana, I mean, you obviously knew her extremely well. How did that connection come about? Obviously, through being Dean of Chapel Royal, but how did you end up becoming an executive of her will? Well, I think um, it was uh, getting to know the family in the uh, aftermath of the tragedy. Um, and uh, the two executors were her mother and one of her sisters, Sarah. Era. And yeah. it became clear that um, it would be helpful to them and helpful to all sorts of other people involved if they could be joined by somebody else. And so I was appointed uh, by the court um, to uh, actually become a third executor. So I'm glad to say um, that um, although... Looking from the outside, someone may say, a bishop, a mother, a sister, is this a really high-powered um, body of executors? Actually, 
we, we did rather well. We increased uh, the value of the estate, uh, and we fought several smart engagements with the inland revenue. For instance, um, second-hand frocks are not that valuable, but of course, um, if it's been worn by a celebrity, what is the value? The only index the inland revenue was prepared to accept for establishing the value was the sale proceeds of Elvis Presley's wardrobe. <laughs> of course, you are known as an academic and you have great knowledge and you're a great reader and fantastic library you've established over the years. One of the things that people probably don't know is you, you're an expert on the Turin Shroud. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was an expert on the Turin Shroud. I mean, there were, there were moments when you had to um, be clear that those who doubted the authenticity of the Turin Shroud w were the fathers of the church. Actually, there was an edict from Rome in the 1660s saying, well, you know, it's a pious object, and no doubt it may stir you to piety, but this must not be confused with the actual veil. Um, now, that was what the church said. The popular enthusiasm for it began with photographic um, discoveries that there was something very odd about the negative when it was photographed. And so it was actually scientific credulity which led to the, um, I think, fantasy of the Shroud. There were many such objects in medieval Europe. It just happens that very few others have survived. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really preen myself on being well you better, i'm you a gave... specialist generalist so. <laughs> <laughs> well uh maybe you are but uh, we of course first got to know each other with your great passion of um green issues yeah and you led the church from that very early on you recognized the importance of it uh, i was obviously minister of energy and climate change and that's why we sort of got to know each other uh, are you satisfied with the way the church has gone in that regard uh, no, uh, because I think that um, one of the things that afflicts all institutions which have uh, such a high degree of popular participation is a sort of um, wandering agenda. You pick up one thing and get interested in it, and you pick up another thing and another thing. I think that can afflict governments as well. But you were very much behind getting the church into uh, a zero carbon state. Yeah, absolutely. And that um, was your—you were the champion of that. Well, they've made the—they've made the statements, they've made the decisions, but uh, making the decisions and having the rhetoric is very different from every. What you've got to do, it seems to me, in any position of leadership or in, in any governmental position, is to go on with a quite clearly defined, rather limited agenda. You go on and on and on about it. And when you have bored yourself silly, <laughs> one of your chief stakeholders has heard the message for the first time. And the other area, of course, where you've spent a lot of time is with the International Christian Church. You've traveled a lot. You've spent created great relationships, particularly in Africa. Well, one of the thrilling things of the most recent period is being... Um, a trustee of the Queen's Darman Jubilee appeal yeah. to bring an end to blindness caused by trachoma in the Commonwealth. And because of the Queen's name, we raised £100 million. 
and operated with local health departments, uh, Site Savers International, um, Water Aid. Uh, and uh, I went to see the work in Uganda, for example. It, it is astonishing uh, that 80% of the vast numbers of people in the world who are blind are blind for preventable causes. I mean, that's one of the most terrifying statistics I know. And this is a one area in which we can make uh, an enormous impact yeah. and have done so. Yeah. And, of course, it's particularly relevant uh, to me because the health services in much of Africa in particular are run by the church, not our church only. No. The future of the church, talking about Africa, with the increase in populations of Christian populations outside of the United Kingdom, Yeah. I mean, the center of gravity must be under threat in the same way that it would be under threat having the Commonwealth based in, in the UK. Do you see that round the corner? Uh, well, I mean, there are many more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are yeah, exactly. in England. Of course, that's, that's the truth. Um, we are a very small part of the global story. The much more significant part, I think, is the way in which religious sociology in South America first uh, and increasingly in Africa and Asia is uh, being reshaped by um, Holy Spirit movements of various kinds, Pentecostals. I mean, in Brazil, for instance, there's a block of senators, perhaps 70, uh, in the Brazilian parliament who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. The sociology of the Christian church has changed profoundly in the last 20 years throughout the world. And uh, I'm particularly, uh, my particular responsibility is relations with the Orthodox. So yes. I've seen a lot of Eastern Europe and, yeah. uh, and Russia. But also, as president of the Bible Society, I had business interests in China. That's where we print our Bibles. Yes. Well, Richard, it's been fantastic talking to you, as always. And uh, the Lords is very lucky to have you continuing leading the way on, with the Christian faith. Thank you very much indeed for sparing the time. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I've realized that uh, we could have gone on much longer, but uh, there we are. <laughs> we certainly could. <laughs>